So I'm like, all right, well, I don't know. It was like this about that. The, the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. So I'm constantly going, no, no, no stop that, put that down, don't touch that, take that out of your mouth. All right, here we go. Today is Monday, October 27th, 2014, and this is episode 90 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Mr. Bell. Wouldn't this be our Halloween episode, then? It, yes, it would. All Hallows' Eve, which uh, we have absolutely nothing prepared on that topic whatsoever. Oh, God damn it. So, hey, uh, bad guys are scary. Ooh. That's true. APTs. China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. You scared now? Cyber, cyber, cyber. There you go. <laughs> are you uh, Are you doing anything exciting for All Hallows' Eve? Uh, apparently, I will be uh, recovering, so. That's true. See, I didn't know if we were going to talk about this in the show, but Jerry has been preparing so many show notes and diligently researching uh, that he injured one of his typing fingers. That's true. In such a way that uh, he'll have to have surgery. Which once, is, once you get above the 600 word per minute rate when you're typing. It's dangerous. You, yes. there There is a severe risk of, of injury. And well, you know, uh-huh. it happened. So anyhow. Yeah. So, well, you know, you'll be nice and stoned on Friday then, which would be great for all the kids coming to your house. Oh, that's a good idea. And if it's bleeding, all the better. Well, I don't think they let you leave recovery if it's weeping blood. I'm just saying. I mean, I'm just saying. Could, it could it could start, you know, or I could poke at it a little bit. Wow. All right. So, hopefully all this will be cut from the actual show. Moving on, shall we? <laughs> You know, I will say the opinions expressed on this show in no way, coincidentally otherwise, reflect the opinions of our employers, past, present, or future. This is the please don't fire us clause. That's right. So, so again, please don't fire us. Uh, although, for the record, we both work at an at-will employment state, so they could fire us if they didn't like our haircut. So. Which is a severe problem for me. Well, so far you haven't been fired for your haircut. That's because I work at home. That's true. Anyhow. What do we got tonight? So we have a, uh, a lovely assortment of stories. The first one is from Dark Reading. And the title is 10 Things IT Probably Doesn't Know About Cyber Insurance. And there are some uh, some things I really hadn't considered. Uh, we, I know we've talked about cyber insurance a number of times, and so some of these things are recap or rehash. Uh, but you know they're they're uh, worth talking about again, anyhow. And there are a couple of new new things that I hadn't previously heard of or, or considered, at least. Uh, you know, the first the first item they have is that cyber insurance policies aren't magic. And, you know, basically, it is, these policies are, uh, are utilitarian, right? They are 
intended to cover a particular risk up to a particular point. Uh, and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. Uh, a lot of it just depends on, you know, how much you're willing to pay, what your particular risk situation is, and and on and on. Uh, the the next point they have is, and we've, we've talked about this in the past, and that's that you need to rethink or you need to think about retroactive dates. And this is really important with uh, some of the the more protracted breaches that we've we've seen. When you sign up for an insurance policy, just to recap, right? When you sign up for one of these insurance policies, you have an effective date, and if it comes to pass that you're you're going to make a claim based on a breach, and the breach started before the effective date, which is not. Uh, you know, it's not hard to imagine that that could happen, given that a lot of these breaches exist for months or even years sometimes before they're detected. Uh, the insurance company isn't going to pay, so that's uh, that's something to think about. You can often negotiate uh, retroactive coverage, but again, that's going to cost you more money. So you have to really uh, think that through. Uh, the next one, and this is one of the ones that I hadn't really considered, but makes sense. Terrorism's an act of foreign enemy exclusions could sink you. That's their words. Uh, it's similar in concept here in the U.S. You have the acts of God clauses in all of our insurance, you know, homeowners and car uh, automobile insurance, where uh, uh, acts of God and, and terrorism and acts of war. Uh, if you know your uh, your your car gets bombed by a tank, you know your insurance company's not going to. Not going to pay. Sorry. So that's an interesting one, right? Because now we're getting into attribution. Yes. Intent. I see this as pretty sticky. What is a foreign enemy in terrorism? Is it Chinese state sponsored? How would you know the difference between APT 763 or random dude coming out of China? Or, or, or even uh, you know one of the, the one of the other stories that came out this week. We don't have it here. The FBI has been warning people about foreign, you know, foreign agents, uh, foreign intelligence agencies operatives moonlighting, you know, performing, I guess, at will or or <laughs> for hire uh, uh, cyber attack services, and uh, you know what? How would that be? How would that be classified? You know, if they're using the same kinds of tactics and techniques and it's coming from the same, effectively the same place. You know, those are some interesting questions. And I don't know how that would play out. You know, at the end of the day, insurance companies' businesses do not pay out, right? That's kind of how they make money. Yeah, this is an interesting one. It really could get squirrely. There are a lot of times I think that companies may never have an idea who exactly caused the issue. So is it incumbent upon then the company's been breached to prove that it wasn't quote-unquote terrorism or act of a foreign enemy? Don't know. That's an interesting one. I'd, I'd like to look in. Because the reason why I find this interesting is we talk a lot about risk management. And insurance is exactly that. It is about transferring financial liability to a third party for a premium that you're paying. So I really think with the complexity and in essence the 
failure defensive postures to adequately keep bad guys out. I think cyber insurance is a reasonable thing for for many companies to consider and to utilize. But things like this make me think that it's going to be really tough to get a payout. Yeah, and I, I suspect, and they they actually say it somewhere here in the article, but uh, a lot of a lot of this is not yet been well adjudicated in the courts, and so. Uh, my guess is that, for instance, if you had a, you know, if you were a uh, an insured party who was trying to f- make a claim of some significant amount that was being disputed because, you know, the insurer was saying, hey, that was a, you know, a foreign intelligence agency that is excluded by your policy. I suspect, you know, if it's if if the stakes are big enough, that could be a issue decided in the courts. Yeah, it'll be interesting to keep, uh, keep an eye on it. So, Yeah. Um, another next point was you're buying more than a claims payout. So it's their, their point there is you're not just, you know, you're not just buying an insurance policy to, to get money if you get hacked. You're also uh, getting some other help like uh, they say on staff legal support uh, to help with fighting class action lawsuits and, on staff security people to help advise against or advise in the the recovery and response to an incident and even uh even beforehand apparently they'll in some cases come out and give some consulting uh that that the next item is kind of tied to that and that's even in a minimal even sorry even a minimal policy buys you a valuable partner and so you know that one of their points here and I think they make it again later is it's not necessarily an all or nothing thing, right? If you, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to cover the entire amount you might lose, right? So their, their point is if you have a million dollar policy and you suffer $1.7 million in damages, it's not, you know, certainly you still have a $700,000 problem, but you benefit from that policy, right? So they often have negotiated the, the insurance carrier will have negotiated rates with uh, forensic companies and, and, and lawyers and things like that, which you will benefit from. So it's not, you know, you may have on paper this $700,000 uh, problem or, or challenge, but when you put it in context, uh, you without that policy, you may be paying a lot higher rates So for, for certain services. It's an interesting point. I can see where it's in the insurer's best interest to have good quality folks who can help. But then I also wonder if they're going a little too low in quality. And and here's why I say that. And this may be a terrible example, but I'll use it anyway. I remember when I bought my first home, I got a home warranty with it, which you know deals with appliances and all sorts of crap. And I tried to utilize them and they were terrible. They did a terrible job. They did the minimal necessary. They used crappy parts, and I was better off just going and hiring a professional and paying a little more, and so be it. So I'm wondering, at the end of the day, what kind of quality you're getting uh, from some of these pre-negotiated third parties. But it's an interesting point. Uh, that's a good point because, again, they're you know. Although I guess it it depends on whose whose pocket it comes out of. You know, I I don't know. That's it's a really good point you bring up. Uh, their next point is when you talk, who you talk to after a breach could affect your claim. Uh, 
And I think their their point here is that you really don't want to <laughs> effectively go run in your mouth, uh, particularly about what may or may not be covered in in the policy or as part of a claim, uh, because a lot of that communication is discoverable and could potentially be uh, be used by your insurer to you know to to potentially prove that uh you know you're i guess they, they don't really say it right but that you're overstating the the issue or making an assumption uh about the the insurer paying out that sort of thing so you know basically they're saying you you really need to be careful uh i think their sentence here was in particular, policyholders have to be careful about discussing coverage issues with their brokers, especially in email or instant messaging. In many jurisdictions, communications with a broker are not subject to any privilege and any unprotected communications may be discoverable if a coverage dispute ultimately arises. So, you know, this is this starts to stray into some of the more pure, uh, you know, legal, you know, legal process, I guess, for lack of a better term, that you have to be uh, be cognizant of. Next point was delaying notice as a potential claim killer. And this one was something that I hadn't really, I guess, explicitly thought about. I guess uh, I, I may have implicitly assumed that it was there. But uh, their point was that you, uh, although it varies by policy, a lot of insurers will want to know within 24 hours of public disclosure if you're going to file a claim. And they also say, generally, however, notice must be provided within 30 and 90 days after the discovery of a breach and failure to abide by the policy's specific notice provisions may bar coverage in some jurisdictions, which, um, you know, that that can be really perilous because a lot of companies will, you know, will like to spend some time kind of figuring out what's going on and how bad the breach is, and then make a decision. And if you're not aware of those kinds of of issues, you may uh, you know you may let the time lapse and and uh, not have an option at that point. And then uh, the next one is insured insurance companies are starting to reward reword policies to only cover theft, which is a, another interesting point. That a lot of you know data incidents or, or data theft incidents are the result of lost devices, not necessarily stolen devices. So if I uh, you know if I leave my laptop on the train, you know that's potentially and and I have a whole bunch of PHI or you know credit card data or whatever, uh, that's potentially not a covered event if my policy only covers theft. So that's their point there. Uh, And then um, contractual liability exclusions might void your policy without action. So they, their point there is insurance, uh, I'm reading from here, insurance carriers often try to avoid coverage by arguing that contractual relationships with vendors, credit card companies, and banks act to void the purchase insurance in the event of a breach. So basically, uh, you really have to kind of be aware of the you know the ecosystem around the the things that you're trying to protect and 
you know, how this may be interpreted by your insurance carrier. And, you know, one of the things they didn't mention in here, but I started to wonder about like, uh, you know, IT outsourcers, you know, if, how does that play in, you know, if, if, uh, you know, if, if your IT outsourcer did something wrong and that ended up creating the, the circumstances that led to the breach, how would the insurance company view that? So these are, these are some interesting complexities. And then finally, it's less expensive than you think. Uh, their, their point here is that, uh, let's see, risk transfer is a legit option. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, given the prevalence and costs associated with data breaches, cyber liability insurance is still uh, unbelievably low. And this kind of goes back to the, you know, the previous point that you don't necessarily have to buy the Cadillac to get some benefit out of insurance company, uh, uh, this uh, cyber insurance. You, you um, Although I will tell you that figuring out how much coverage you need has got to be a pretty difficult uh, uh, problem. Uh, and, and I've also heard kind of uh, anecdotally that especially for bigger companies, it's very difficult to get what you, you know, for whatever price, to get the amount of coverage that you might think you would need. Just because they don't, you know, the, the, the insurers are unwilling to go that high, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, I suppose. So anyhow, that is, uh, that's that story. So one other thought I had on that is, and it's not in the story, it's just something that occurred to me as, I wonder if this is like homeowner's insurance or uh, pre-ACA uh, health insurance and so that you know you make a claim and then you get canceled. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I haven't heard of that. Um, you know, I suspect some of these big breaches that like Target and Home Depot where, you know, where we expect, I think, uh, in fact, Target is having some public debate with, with some, uh, some companies right now. I suspect we may start seeing public discussions about that, uh, but mm-hmm. I've not, I've certainly not heard any so far. All right. So our next story comes from CSO and the title is Disaster as Crypto Wall Encrypts U.S. Firm's Entire Server Installation. And this this fun, this story is a combination of hilarious and bad all at once. So, a U.S.-based nonprofit uh, had their seven file servers, I assume they're file servers, containing a total of seventy-five gigabytes of data, encrypted by CryptoWall, and you know. I have been a pretty big proponent or critic, I guess, of uh, the IT crowd and clicking on links and what kinds of bad things can happen as a result of uh, IT administrator shenanigans. And uh, by the way, this apparently happened when an IT administrator uh, opened an email or uh, a link to an email, I should say. And the administrator apparently had map drives to the seven servers, which then were systematically encrypted. But that's not the interesting part of the story to me. Uh, although I do, I do, uh, you know, I do find the administrator tie-in kind of interesting. What is most interesting 
is that uh, this this organization went through quite a lot of hoops to actually pay the ransom to get the decryption key. And uh, they actually had previously gone through a uh, security awareness training program with uh, Kevin Mitnick's company and another company called No Before. And apparently these companies offer a, uh, you know, part of their, part of their, their shtick is if you, you know, if you have your company's employees trained with their security awareness program and you subsequently get uh, crypto walled, they'll pay the ransom. And so, uh, so apparently no before paid the $500, 1.33 Bitcoin ransom and they got their decryption key and decrypted their data after about 18 hours of concerted work and they still lost some, I guess they still lost some data that they had to recover from backup tape. But, uh, you know, the, and I guess they, they, they point out here, right? This was a business from their perspective, from the perspective of this, uh, this nonprofit company, it was an easy business decision because on the one hand, you don't want to pay the, pay the ransom, but on the other hand, you know, you got, you got to keep going. And uh, from their perspective, restoring from backup tape, which they weren't convinced would actually work, uh, would idle their employees for too long. But, damn it, this is rewarding, terrible behavior. It is, it is. And this is why I think, if you look at it from a human psychology standpoint, that $500 ransom is at the the right price point because how many other organizations are faced with the exact same question, do the exact same thing? Because at the end of the day, 500 bucks is just 500 bucks. We got to get back to work. How much is it costing us? Let's go. Yeah. I'm not saying I yep. agree with it, but I'm saying I abs- if it was like $10,000, be a whole different situation. And I think that the bad guys are smart to find that price point where it's just not painful enough to seek other options. Yeah, And it's just worth it to just throw the money at them and away we go. And I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I'm saying that that is what I think is what's happening. And it's uh, it's working. We see this all the time. And I agree with you. We don't want to be rewarding these guys, but I promise you this is what a lot of people are thinking about when they're going through this process of, well, hell, how much will it take? There's no other way to get around it. We can't decrypt it. Um... I mean, it, it, yes, it becomes a pragmatic business decision that, that you have to make, right? It, because on the one hand, you, you have to do ultimately what's good for you. And you're not necessarily going to be rewarded, you know, if you idle your employees for a week while you have to restore from tape, you know, you're, that's, you know, nobody's going to come around and, and pat you on the back because you stuck it to the, you know, to, to the criminals here. So you got to do what's right for you at the end of the day. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, that means paying the ransom. But damn, it kills me. Yeah, I agree. It's it's unfortunate. Don't, God, don't click on the links, well, <laughs> please. You know, but here's the thing. Let's, let's also separate the fact that CryptoWall is the payload. The exploit can be done many, many different ways. 
Yeah, absolutely. There, there is no one exploit. I, have, I was having this conversation the other day with one, one of the sales guys I work with. Uh, they, how do we stop crypto wall? Well, that's not the question. Because crypto wall could be coming from many, 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 many different exploit vectors. Yeah. It really comes back to how do you stop malware? Because at the end of the day, crypto wall is malware. It's... So what right. is your malware defense strategy? Sure. It could come in have, via ads. It could come in, you know, power, <laughs> funny PowerPoints. It could come in, I mean, like you, just, like you said, it could come in a ton of different ways. You know, and in this case, it comes back to as well, administrative control, uh, having admin rights, having map drives, uh, the person who clicked on it having way more privileges than they probably needed to have for regular going about their business kind of stuff. Right. There, there are some things you can do. If you're specifically concerned about CryptoLocker, right, there are some things you could do, not have those drives mapped, not be running as admin all the time. Uh, you know, assume that this may happen. What are you going to do about it if it does? You know, one of the, one of the observations I'll make is that th- this appears to be a smaller, I mean, it's, <clears throat> I think uh, they said something that they had, in the, on the order of hundreds of employees. So, you know, it's a respectable size, but it's not huge. And I think, in my experience, a lot of the more sophisticated controls about, you know, making sure you don't run as domain admin on your, you know, your, your normal workstation, often are not, those kinds of good hygiene types of things are absent in smaller organizations from what I've seen. And, yeah. uh, you know, and that's, I, I well, think that's problematic. I, okay. I'm, I'm going to disagree with that for just a moment. Okay, go ahead. In very large organizations, I also see the entire gamut of... <laughs> well, that's fair. Right? So you have incredibly clueless people doing things in large organizations, too, just based on the size. I won't disagree with that. And I think it's the percent of impact to the company, Right. Uh, is probably lessened at a larger organization um, than in a smaller one. But yeah, you know, this is a challenge that a lot of small and medium-sized companies have is they don't have the budget to go do aggressive IT security, much less have dedicated security staff. Uh, and this is something I think small businesses are just getting the short end of the stick on it. It's, And I don't have a good answer for that, by the way. As, as a small business, I just don't think they've got the resources to to easily counter in the ways that large organizations can. Yeah, and I think that was the that was the point I was trying to get at. Not not that large organizations are you know this bastion of awesomeness when it comes to malware defense, but um, you know the, I think that there isn't a consideration for some of these. Uh, more basic hygiene controls in some of the smaller companies because you tend to have, uh, you know, you, you tend to have more. What I guess what I would say more utilitarian system administrators and, and maybe not really any actual security considerations. And you know, from that perspective, I do wonder uh, if just just to you know go off on a tangent for a second, um, you know, a company like this or an organization like this, it wouldn't. It wouldn't really cost them much, maybe a little bit of labor, for their administrators to have two different, you know, a, 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 a normal ID and a domain admin ID. Sure. Right. And, but somebody has to think think that through, you know, and that's, 
it, it seems like, you know, I don't know if this exists or not, but, you know, is, is there a best practice guide for small businesses on, on how to, on how to run your IT shop? Yeah, I think there is. And I think probably the one thing I would say is user awareness training probably has more bang for the buck in a small organization because it's a lot easier to sort of keep people honest and stay on top of that. Yeah, but we all know user awareness training is only for the users, not for the <laughs> IT people. <laughs> well, right. And that, that comes back to yeah, having a good quality, solid, security-minded IT staff if you can. Right. All right. Well, I think we... Uh... All right. And our last two stories are kind of related. The first one comes from CSO Online, and the title is Fraudulent Activity is First Hint of a Staples Data Breach. And as you might expect, this is a this is actually, a, a, I guess, about a week old now. Uh, happened, I think it happened right or came out right after our last episode. And, the, you know, basically that the point they're making here is how crazy is it that the first inkling staples had that they had a problem came from banks and why why could they not detect this on their own well this has been a common theme lately though right this yeah. is something we see over and over and over again that the banks and the credit card processors are the one who pick up this first yeah, and in fact, I think the only one in recent memory I can think of where that hasn't been the case is uh, the UPS store, where who they where they had actually proactively detected allegedly the uh, the breach. But everything I think everything else has uh, come from third party notifications, and and that kind of dovetails into the to the last story, which is also from CSO Online titled PCI Compliance Under Scrutiny Following Big Data Breaches. And in this particular article, they beat on Home Depot quite a lot, which, you know, I guess maybe they do, in fact, uh, deserve it. But you know, one of the points they bring up is in, in terms of Home Depot, how could Home Depot possibly be PCI compliant, if PCI compliance requires you to monitor and review your logs, and uh, you, you know if if they were in fact doing that, they would have certainly seen the you know this this data being stolen. And I think that is really myopic. I gotta tell you, you know, define monitor and view logs. That's the thing, you know what. They're probably generating five billion log events per day, right? Maybe, and, maybe they're in there. Maybe the data's in there. Maybe it's not. And and what are you going to do with that exactly? Right. Right. So, you know, just conservatively speaking, let's say somebody's generating five thousand events per second, which is not out of the ordinary at all. Right. That's thirty three hundred thousand events per minute. Right, that's do the math here. Eighteen million events per hour. Right, that's uh, yeah, four hundred thirty-two million events per day. So that's just based on five thousand events per second, which I think is fairly conservative for the size of a company like Home Depot. So all that being said, and here is the the fundamental problem with PCI is what exactly does that mean to monitor and review your logs, 
Yes, we have them. Look, there's a log. Right. There's there's an implication in there that you're looking at logs that would give you would be able to give you an indication that something is actually happening. And, you know, that may or may not actually be true. And then there's also the problem you just brought up that are you able to even if you did have the right kind of data, would you actually be able to tell uh, that there's something anomalous happening given the volume? And by the way, I think 5,000 is 5,000 per second is, is pretty low. I'll tell you, you know, I've been talking with Bob and Bob was telling me about a SIM deployment he's doing at a very large organization. And in one particular site out of literally hundreds, uh, they, they, they swamp their SIM with 55,000 events per second. Wow. And that's just once, one, I would say it's actually one part of one site out of hundreds. And, and so it's not hard to think that you could, you could be talking, you know, trillions of logs in a, in a year or even shorter. So it's difficult, right? This is a, it's, it's a hard problem. And PCI isn't very prescriptive about what exactly you are supposed to be monitoring and what you're supposed to be looking for. So they just, you know, look, you need to be reviewing your logs. Now, to be clear, I do think there's a tremendous amount of good security data you can derive from your logs. Absolutely. And there is, I'm not ripping on log monitoring. I think that done properly, it can be incredibly effective. What, what I'm taking exception with is that PCI is too vague in this area. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, it, it becomes a checkbox, you know, Hey, we have uh you know, we've got these firewalls and we've got these IPSs and we got, you know, windows event logs and we're pulling them all into a SIM and we're looking at them. And so we can check the box that we are monitoring our logs, but then who is really asking the question, what would we actually see? You know, who, who's doing, I guess, the logical regression test to say, hey, is, if something like this happened, would we actually have the kind of visibility we would need in order to see data being exfiltrated? And you may or you may not. And I, I think more often than not, it's the answer is probably no. Or at least if it was there, it's, it's going to be so buried that, uh, that you're not really going to see it. Uh, you know, the other part of this particular story, which kind of reminds me back of the, in the, uh, the Enron and Sarbanes-Oxley days is kind of the conflict of interest between companies, retailers and QSAs, you know, that, that there's effectively QSA shopping going around, which by the way, on some level kind of makes sense, right? Because if you have... Uh, you know, if you have a particular kind of environment and you have chosen to protect it in some particular way, uh, you know, when you go to a QSA who's hell bent on doing it some other way, you know, they they may not they may not certify you because they're not comfortable with it. So you may you may legitimately have to go find someone who understands what the heck you're doing. But how do you separate that out from you know just shopping for someone who's going to give you the you know, the easy way out. So I think that's one of the, you know, one of the, the problems they're pointing out here. Um, 
I'm not sure that there's really a good way out of this. You know, one of the points they bring up is that ultimately we need to drive automation. And that's a, that's a, I guess I don't want to say panacea from their perspective, right? But I guess I will call it a panacea. One of the, one of their points is that, hey, companies are kind of incented to cut corners. And they cut corners because complying with PCI is expensive. And if you can drive more automation, there's less desire or impetus to cut cut those corners and therefore everybody benefits. And I'm not entirely sure that makes sense. You know, I'm I'm not convinced that as much can be automated as they might think. I don't know. What do you think? I don't think looking at logs manually aside from point troubleshooting is ever, you know, useful, right? So you need to have some sort of automated log analysis if you're trying to detect security events. It's the only way you're going to, you know, have any any real success there. But much like IPS or any of anything else, it's going to come down to what is that system built like? Is it built on signatures that are looking for Indicators of compromise? Is it built on heuristics? Is it built on baseline pattern behavior? There's so many different ways to slice that pie, and they all have pros and cons. So I do think there's a lot that can be done in that area, and it's one thing that sims are supposed to be helping with and other uh, tools that assist with sims and other log management tools. I don't think we do a very good job in general as an industry of deriving the data out of our logs that we could. Uh, from a security standpoint, I do think there's a lot there. But these tools are expensive. You're talking about a lot of storage space, too, to to really chew on all these logs in a in a reasonable time frame. Yeah, I guess I should have been more um, more specific. I, I, I absolutely agree. I think that you really end up having to do some kind of automation in terms of log monitoring. I, I guess I was thinking more broadly in terms of oh. general PCI compliance, you know, that ah, it, well. it sounds, you know, to me it sounded like they're, they're pushing for more of the QSA process to be an automated kind of a, a deal. But, but, you know, well, that's, I, that's tough because everybody's network environment is different. I, and everybody's, I you know, everybody's point of sale system is different. Everybody's backend is different. So, you know, is the next step then that PCI starts dictating the environment that all cardholder data is in as a certified monolithic structure? You know, I guess I, <laughs> that's a tough, that's a loaded yeah. question right there. I, I don't, I don't think they will. Right. But to get, to get away from a QSA subjective opinion, you would almost have to have a, a very standardized environment. Yeah, right. A reference architecture. Yeah. A, a repeatable, you know, repeatable reference architecture that that is somewhat rigidly enforced. And in the absence of that, I think it takes some pretty intense creativity and and focus on the part of QSA and the security teams themselves to to actually recognize what kinds of things need to be in place to to address the unique challenges of a given environment because again as they exist they're all very very different have 
you know, very different risk profiles, uh, different weaknesses, different different soft spots. And when you're trying to apply the same kind of PCI yardstick to each one of those, you're bound to have uh, you're bound to have data leaking out. So um, I think that's the that's the problem I see. And I you know I guess the the, the question is whether this problem is, you know, we've talked about this before, is the problem actually big enough to really warrant that kind of a response? And I'm not sure that it does. You know, one of the things I'm, I've mentioned, meant to mention on this podcast for, for uh, two weeks now, for the past two weeks, is that uh, the Southern Fried Security Podcast, about three weeks ago, interviewed uh, Ellie Miller, who is a uh, what I would call a fraud expert, and she she's a regular on the Risk Science podcast. But um, that interview is really really good because she points out that we make a lot of hay. We security people make a whole lot of hay out of these credit card breaches. But at the end of the day, fraud losses are at almost record lows. And the reason that fraud losses are at almost record lows is that the the anti-fraud you know techniques and and uh, systems are very effective at what they do. And so, for example, when uh, you know when Target loses forty million credit cards, that doesn't mean that forty million credit cards had fraudulent charges charged against them. It means that you know maybe five hundred thousand did before. The credit card companies picked up on it and and started to uh, you know to, to clamp down and and uh, not allow any further fraudulent charges. So uh, I th- I think one of the one of the stats I saw was that Target, as a result of the Target breach, there was about fifty three million dollars in fraudulent charges, but the banks spent about a hundred million dollars reissuing credit cards. Which, which is a, you know, a really interesting, uh, you know, way to look at it. So yeah, it's it's um, it's certainly bad. But at some point, we have to take a step back and you know look at it from the big picture and say, you know, it, yeah, w- nobody wants to lose credit cards. Nobody wants to be the Target or the Home Depot or the Staples, right? But how much are we willing? to, you know, are we willing to pay higher, if, <laughs> effectively, are we willing to pay potentially significantly higher costs at our retailers to cover fraud losses that are, you know, not all that large? So, I mean, it, at some level, what we're really worried about, or what we're really wringing our hands about is that every now and then, maybe several several times a year for some of us we have to go through and get new credit cards and change all of our you know online bill pay and all that crap which is not fun by any stretch but you know it, it's not a, it's not a simple equation right that's a really interesting point i think it's a good point you know one thing that occurs to me is the credit card industry in the us is moving to chip and pin they're investing in that. So clearly for them, there's an ROI on reducing fraud for rolling out that infrastructure. 
Uh, it remains to be seen how much that will actually impact reduction of fraud costs, and, you know, all inclusive of everything we're talking about, uh, issuing new cards, customer service, all that kind of stuff. Right. So that will be interesting to see if that has a measurable impact. They seem to think it does. I also think that as more and more companies are having this happen to them, the stigma associated with it is diminishing in the eyes of the public. Absolutely. So we're getting to a point where we have fatigue over these, and it's almost becoming inevitable. So the companies themselves are no longer as much, I think, suffering the brand damage and the backlash that they used to. You know, Target took a pretty big hit. Uh, I didn't, I'm not seeing that as much anymore as these are happening more and more often. It seems like most folks are saying this is inevitable and therefore not the company's fault. Yeah, I think so. There was a, there's always, especially in the security world, I think we're always looking for the proverbial pony in the pile, you know, where, where we're trying to find that one survey that says, hey, you know, information security is really stinking important because if you don't invest heavily in my program, you're going to lose the trust of your customer base and, and therefore you need to you need to to listen to what i say but the reality is and i guess i would say that i think as as recently as yesterday i saw an email on the sierra mailing list that uh there was a survey done by some i think it was nielsen in fact that said the majority of americans will uh, will either avoid breached retailers or spend significantly less but that does not in any way map to the reality of what these retailers are seeing in terms of sales. And so it's an interesting thing that it's, uh, you know, like these, the people that are being surveyed feel like they need to, you know, to give uh, a politically correct answer, I guess. And the reality is it's not, it's not affecting their shopping habits materially. And therefore, I think exactly what you said is the case. You know, I've had this discussion a number of times. Try to go to a major retailer that hasn't been breached recently. You know, it's getting more and more difficult. And and I think the stigma is going down. Yeah, it's, you know, if I guess after the eighth time you've had to have your credit card replaced, does it really matter if it was, you know, Home Depot or Staples or Target? You know, it's just annoying uh, you you kind of lose track of of why, so you know that's that's I I think a, a discussion at some point we have to have. Right now, I think there's a lot of dare I say manufactured outrage over credit card loss, which is annoying, um, but in the in the macro scale isn't uh you know isn't as damaging i think as people like to think it is and by the way uh back on the emv card thing the interview with Ellie miller on southern fry security does she covers emv pretty extensively too it's a really good discussion highly recommend it. Uh, our listeners go listen to that i'll i'll try to find the link and drop it in the show notes so that is, uh, I think that is the stories we had for you for tonight. Indeed. And uh, as usual, we appreciate your time listening to us. And uh, we will talk again next week. In the meantime, if you like the story, give us some, uh, some good ratings on iTunes. 
If you have any feedback, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can find the show notes and other stuff on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will talk to you again next week. Have a great uh, week, everybody. Thanks. Take care. Well, you apparently know more than I do. Only in this one instance. Fair enough. Clear on this. This one. Yeah, but they're not going to hear the rest of that comment. (laughs) You want to do a podcast? No. 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 Just end it right now, huh? It's a good run. Oh, man. Sure. Let's do a podcast. I think we should come up with a better story about your finger. Like your dog was attacking a little old lady and you had to save the little old lady. By sacrificing my finger? Right. Hey, that's a good one. I like it. We we could do a Jerry is spaced out podcast. Fucking bullshit filled bullshit of bullshit.